Welcome back, friends, to our podcast, Cheeky Vibe, Peaceful Life. My name is Lauren Mazadonsky. And my name is Michelle Moss. And today we have a beautiful guest. Her name is Judge Elizabeth Tamakis. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We are so happy to have you. This is one of those things where sometimes you meet people in life and in the first three minutes, you're like, aha, this is a person. This is my person. This is a person that could be a good friend. So um, Elizabeth and I met at a good friend's wedding. Um, Colin and Hannah Bryan got married and we were seated, seated next to each other at this table. And I had heard your name before from, you know, friends, you know, obviously the Robin and Rich knew you and Cheryl and Steve knew you. Um, and so when I sat down, I'm like, oh, okay, this is the famous Elizabeth, who's a judge, I get to sit next to. And as soon as we started talking, we didn't stop talking. And I mean, the whole wedding was going on in the other room. And there was a part where we're just sitting in this big empty room talking. And it was, I know you guys know so much now. I'm excited to to get in on it. Yeah. Yeah. It was wonderful. So um, we just kind of wanted to start off with um, sharing your story of who you are, how you became a judge. But before that, there's a lot of personal obstacles that's, that's occurred in your life. So um, where do you want to start? You know, where do you want to go? What? Well, uh, that's a good question. I, I'll just tell you that I was um, not always intending to be a judge. And um, I grew up wanting to be in performing arts. Um, my dad is a lawyer, was a lawyer, he's gone now, but uh, I worked in his office a lot and I thought, boy, this is a boring job. I sure never want to do this. And, and wasn't the performing, was it ballet? Uh, I mainly, I like tap. I wanted to be a rocket. Okay. So, <laughs> I right. very specifically wanted to be a rocket. And then um, when I went to college, I did some musical theater. So, you know, I like to tell people nothing is ever wasted. Um, I had a theater Love speech that. class and I had acting class and I still, as a judge, have to go out there every day. I have an audience. I wear a costume, you know, I put on my robe. I've got my gavel, my props. I'm on my stage. I say my lines. So, you I know, love how you look at that in a positive way of, you know, instead of looking back like, oh, I could have gotten into this sooner if I wasn't doing that. Like you looked at that as growth. Yeah. And um, so I, I think that um, maybe what I would like people to know is you at 17 years old, you really don't always know your path. You know, I have a daughter who knew her path very early, but most of us, um, you really have to listen to things and, and I would say people God put in my pathway and said, but what about this? And have you thought about that? And um, if you're really open to hearing those things and open to considering new ideas or possibilities, then you end up where you're, you know, like in my case, I, I feel like this is where I was intended to be. Um, I didn't, I was raised in Tuscarawas County. I never thought I would stay here. It was not my intention. Um, 
I didn't intend to be a lawyer at first. I didn't intend to be a judge. Um, How did it go from performing arts? What was that pivotal um, defining moment where you were, you know, thinking about being on a stage to switching to a different kind of stage? How did that happen? You know, at 19 years old, I was saying, hmm, you know, I was raised in a pretty nice home with pretty nice opportunities for travel and eating at restaurants and being in college, I thought, I really can't afford these things. So how am I going to be able to afford these things? And um, I took a class in critical writing because uh, critical writing would be like critiquing. And I thought I might be able to go to theater performances and be a critic. And Mm -hmm. You know, this would be an interesting, it was, it fulfilled a requirement that I needed, but also it was something I thought I can link this to my um, love for performing arts. And when I took this class, the journalism teacher, uh, and this is the benefit of being in a small school, the journalism teacher went to my advisor and said, I want her in journalism. And so the professor yeah. usurped you around, I mean, went around <laughs> you. <laughs> went to my, went to my advisor and my advisor at the time, I had already uh, been exploring um, computer science because my dad said, one of these days, Elizabeth, everyone is going to have a computer on their desk and their homes. And I thought, oh, he is nuts. Like what, <laughs> you know, cause this is the early eighties and computers were these big cumbersome things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I thought, oh, I guess if I'm going to make some money, I should do this computer thing. And I hated it. And I remember the moment. I remember what building I was in at Stevens college. I remember what hallway I was in when the, my advisor stopped me and he said, and by then, back then I went by Liz. He said, Liz, I don't think you're happy. And I started crying <laughs> and, and uh, he said, but I, you know, I talked to Liz Barnes, the, the journalism teacher, she really wants you in journalism. And so what I appreciated that somebody saw a gift in me or an ability and, uh, you know, I listened um, around. That's, that's, I just want yeah. to say that's important because you were smart enough at 19. A lot of 19 year olds don't always listen, you know, headstrong, whatever. We're going to do it our way. But I love that you said that even before having an open mind and listening to what people say makes a, it can make a good impact on our, don't have to take everything verbatim or take it and, right. but listen and move, you know, internalize a little bit of that. And, and right about that same time, you know, my dad had been talking to me and he said, look, you know, you do a lot of things well. You play the piano, you tap dance, you do, you know, all these things. You need to really figure out what it is you do best. And then he said, and I always remembered this, I think you would be a good lawyer. And I just was like, oh, are you kidding me? You know, I just, I, I listened. I was a good daughter, but in my head, I thought there is no way. And but he planted the seed. But he did. He really did. And 
So uh, in the context of being in a women's college, it's the early 80s, they were trying to pass an equal rights amendment to the constitution. So my college invited a lot of speakers to talk about equal rights and government and, and things. And in the, in, in the process of me being in journalism, covering those events, listening to those speakers, I listened to women who said things like, look, I work for the mayor of Phoenix and I encourage all of you to get involved in politics, even if you're just stuffing envelopes or going door to door. You need to know how your government works. You need to know how people get elected. You, And then um, there was, uh, you know, other, other women who worked for like UNESCO and, and different things that came to the school. But we were also in the same town as the University of Missouri main campus in Columbia, Missouri. And I went over there to hear Pat Corbine speak, who was the co-founder of Ms. Magazine. Mm -hmm. And she was talking again about the Equal Rights Amendment, our responsibilities as journalists to educate people that equal rights does not mean man-hating women, you know, it just means equality for all people. And I think we're still having those conversations today. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought I should go to law school <laughs> so that I know about people's rights so I can be a better journalist. And I went to law school to be a better journalist. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and so um, somewhere along the line, um, you know, I went to law school, I met my husband um, and well, I finished school a semester ahead of him. So um, I was working for my dad and we decided to just go ahead and get married, had a really small wedding um, while he finished up school. And, and he was, was, be, was he going to law school? Was he in law yeah, school? Yeah, we were, we were both in law school up at Akron. And so we got married over his spring break. I mean, we decided we had like a 10 week lead time and my mom made my dress. We had 24 people there. Um, it seems to have stuck. It's been 34 years. <laughs> so, right, doing something. Even, even without all the bells and whistles, it, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's hung in there. But um, but I, you, I, people may or may not know, you take a bar exam uh, and then you wait on results. So I took the bar exam in February. I had to wait nine weeks for results. And then in between there is when we got married. Uh, and then after I got my results, Steve graduated. He took the bar exam in July and he had to wait 13 weeks for his results. So in the meantime, you know, we kept thinking, oh, we're young and every, you know, the, the happening place is Columbus, Ohio. We're going to go to the big city. We're moving to Columbus. Um, but we had to wait for his bar results and he had a one-year commitment with his employer. And so my dad, I'd been licensed for 10 and a half months. My dad gave me two weeks notice that he was going to go work for an oil and gas company. And I became self-employed at 25 years old. Like with, the law firm, the law. Yep. 
Your like, dad's law firm <laughs> and it became yep. yours. <laughs> it became mine. And it's just uh, interesting that you're, you have this amazing life, but, and you're strong, independent, but yet these things, there were some happen chance, happen chance things that occurred that were like, wow. This was not of my design. Yeah. I mean, I cried the whole way home. And um, I talked to Steve when I got home and, and I was like, you know, what about our dream? What about going to Columbus and being where all the cool people are? And, and um, he said, I don't know how you walk away from this. Right. So um, my dad at the time was renting office space to another female attorney. And, you know, my dad's, I remember him telling me this when I was in law school and maybe I was in college. I think I was in college. He said, I'm not hiring any men anymore. I'm hiring women. Women will work harder. And he uh, had three women who worked for him, plus this woman who was running office space from him that he mentored. All four of us became judges. Wow. Yeah, yeah it's pretty cool. So um, anyway, he was, he had this other woman there. Uh, her name is Nanad. And he said, we'll talk about it later. You girls can do something together. And I was just like, what? And, and of course, then I had to walk across the street and go handle my hearings and pretend like my whole world hadn't just changed in a five minute conversation. Um, but I, I did end up talking with Nanette. She's now a judge in the municipal court. And she's uh, one of my, uh, you know, we support one another in our jobs. Um, but we worked together for a number of years, started our families. Um, my dad came back to the private practice. Ultimately, I was in practice um, one year under his salary and 10 years self-employed. Um, and then I was picked completely at random, uh, to be on a selection committee for a federal court judge, which is a lifetime appointment made by the president of the United States. And, um, he, the president would get recommendations through the Senate, the senators in the state had their own vetting process. And at the time, Senator John Glenn said, I want to use a bipartisan committee because our other senator was um, our now governor, of, uh, uh, now a governor of DeWine. Uh, Mike DeWine was the other senator at the time. And he said, you know, he's on the Judiciary Committee. I want to do a, a bipartisan process. And so completely by chance, I was asked to be on this five person committee and I was one of two Republicans. I was the youngest one. I was the only female. I had two children at the time. I could barely walk out of my house without some cereal on my shoulder. <laughs> and um, I was asked to do this thing that I was like, I am not political. What, what if it gets political and I can't even contribute to the conversation? But it was not, it was very refreshing. Um, we ex we looked at all these applicants, it was like 38 applicants, narrowed it down to 12 people to interview. So I'm driving to Cleveland to meet with these other men uh, to, and I thought, okay, this is a lifetime appointment to be a judge. 
what kind of person am I looking for? What are the qualities of a judge that I think are important? So I'm thinking about this all the way to Cleveland. We start the interviews and during our lunch hour, there was a lawyer named Chuck Emmerich. And as we're just chatting, talking, he looked to me and he said, well, what about you? What about me? He said, have you ever thought of being a judge? Well, of course I had not. I mean, you know, judges to me were like, like, I don't know, just beyond anything I was capable of. And, and he said, really, I th tell me about the judges where you are and how many do you have? And, you know, we chatted a little and he said, really, I think you, you should think about that. This is another piece of that same story of the same pattern that people come up to you and give you these prompts and plant right. these seeds. It's interesting. So, I mean, I was 32 years old. I take this, so the same drive where I was driving up there thinking about what qualities am I looking for? The drive back, I, I'm saying, oh, I have that quality. Oh, what about this? Yeah, I have that quality, you know. And by the time I got home, about, you know, an hour and a half later, I thought I, I could do this. I think I would be good at this. And um, it still took a couple of years. I mean, I, I was, I had these little boys. Um, I got pregnant. Um, I was also present in the barn. I was pregnant and I thought, well, I'm not going to run for office. Well, I've got all this going on. Uh, and so then an open seat came up in, uh, 1998. Um, but by 1996, I knew I was going to run. And, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's like you make that mental decision and then it's, then you're there. When I was, when I ran for office, I was 35. I was still nursing my little girl and, um, I looked pretty young. So I made, I mean, this, this may be a little off topic, but you know, I'm out in public. So I made it a point of, I never wear my hair in a ponytail in public. I did not wear jeans for an entire year. Um, if I had shorts, they were walking shorts. I, I tried to make sure that even if I was at the, back then we had video stores, even if I was returning a video, I didn't want anyone to look at me and go, she looks like she's 15, How, why would I elect her to be my judge, you know? So um, I really made that effort the, the whole time, just being aware. Now, I don't think I would have survived social media today because of my age um, and, you know, what people perceived as an experience. Um, I think when you're self-employed for that long, you have a different level of experience and, and maturity than maybe somebody who was on a salary for, for 11 years, but I was still young. The opponents were all 48, 49, 50 years old. They were all male and they all had prior experience in public service. And here's me, 35 years old, two little boys, still nursing my baby girl. And all I had done was 10, 11 years of civil practice. 
Um, but I just worked really hard. I went door to door. We went to every festival. I talked to people. Um, when you're a mom, you your your relationships exponentially grow. So there's like your uh, baseball friends and your wrestling friends and the gymnastics friends and you know suddenly depending on what your kids are doing, your your relationships grow. And you're very approachable, Elizabeth. Very, oh. and I think that makes it that was that's a huge thing in your favor for anybody getting to know you or anything about you. Yeah, well, I hope so. I I was talking to an eighth grade class this morning that was too intimidated to ask me a question. So, yeah. hey, I'm just a mom. So, like, ask me, you know. But um, uh, just to round out the family, I did have another baby once I was elected. So I do have four children. Um, and one grandchild, um, one daughter-in-law. Um, so yeah, that was kind of my path to where I, how I got here when I got elected. So do you keep I, getting elected? Do you have to keep going for re-election every, how often? Every six years. So that first year, um, you know, once, uh, once it became apparent that I was ahead, um, it got in, we needed to take the kids home to take them to bed. You know, my mom and dad came over and I'm sitting there and I looked at my dad and I said, you know, it's kind of that be careful what you wish for. I said, can I really do this job? And, and he said, just don't change. Mm -hmm. And he said, remember, you're the smartest person in the room. Now, I thought that sounded a little pretentious. But I think what he was talking about, at least the way I reconciled that, because I believe him, um, is in the courtroom, if you are truly impartial, your, your judgment is not going to be clouded by your position right. on the case. Right. And so um, I don't know if it's so-called the really the smartest person in the room, but maybe you've got a, a more clarity because I'm not driven by wanting to win right. on this side or that side. And, and you have that. Um, but I hope I haven't changed. I hope I haven't let him down in that respect. Um, I've tried to be myself. I tried to talk to people in the courtroom the way we're talking right now, uh, regardless of what the circumstances that brings them there. And, and, you know, anybody that's listening to this thus far is going to say, wow, Elizabeth Tamakis, Judge Tamakis has had a pretty golden life. And however, we say this over and over again, life keeps coming. So this was the, this is the, how the trajectory of your life was laid out and it was beautiful. And there were a lot of positives. You had some roadblocks, you had some stumbling blocks, some personal things that occurred in your life that it isn't just this roses and ponies, you know, there were difficult things going through as you're a judge with children. Tell us about some of those life altering big moments that happened between your children and your husband and some of the things that were. Well, I think um, the big thing that really, you know, still affects all of us in, in a, one way or another is uh, my second son had an emergency appendectomy when he was 16. And, um, you know, as a mom, you beat yourself up. You say, should I have gotten him to the hospital sooner? Uh, 
you know, he's 16, he's a big kid, we had a lot going on. My son was graduating from high school and he's saying, I have a stomach ache and you go, all right, are you sure you're just not trying to get out of your final exam? Go to the bathroom uh, and get over it. You know, that's right. Go to the bathroom. Get in the bathroom. <laughs> I have no experience with appendicitis and he's just telling me my stomach hurts and um, no fever, you know, all the things you kind of the basics you go through as mom and um, but there came a point where I looked at him and I thought he is very sick. Like I could just, I looked at his face and I knew it and I changed my clothes and I took out my contacts and, um, grabbed a coffee and said, we have to go to the hospital. There's something wrong here. Um, after the surgery, um, they said, you know, it was a Sunday night. They said by Wednesday, he should be able to go home. And he just failed to get better. Um, he was not himself. He's a very gregarious, fun, loving guy. And uh, he was not himself. The kids were great. The kids were coming to the hospital. They were bringing, he's very, my son is artistic. He was they were bringing him things to do art and they were, they brought in the Xbox and they brought movies and, you know, it was a pretty um, unpopulated section of the hospital. So we were able to just sort of take over the room and, but uh, the kids would come and spend time with him and he was not really responsive to that. He was not well. Um, at the time he all he would ask of me is to um, read from the Bible to him. And um, eventually I, you know, I was talking to some people trying to figure out what should we be doing? Even the nurses were saying, we've never had anyone here this long with this problem. And after about 12 days, um, we took it upon ourselves to talk to a family member who's a pediatrician in Cleveland and said, I, I don't understand why we're still here. It's been 12 days. And he said, that's not normal. And I said, so should we be moving him to Akron Children's? He said, well, look, I have privileges in, at University Hospital. Let me get you into Rainbow. And so they sent an ambulance down. Um, I rode with him in the ambulance. Um, we got up there and he said, you hit the jackpot. The doctor on call is the chief pediatric surgery, Dr. Bartsdale. He's a superstar. He was amazing. Did not know us from Adam, but sat there spent the time with my family, asked all of us, all of, all four kids were there, you know, well, the other three and my husband and I said, tell me what's been going on with your brother. He wanted to hear everyone's perspective. My youngest was nine years old and he took an interest in everybody. It was amazing. Um, so my husband took the other kids away and I stayed and Doctor, it was like 10 o'clock on a Friday night and Dr. Barksdale came back to the room and said, um, 
do you want to look at his scans with me? And like took me into a room and had me looking at scans. And, and he said, the first thing we're going to resolve is it's pneumonia. I'm like, what pneumonia? He said, didn't they tell you it's pneumonia? No. And he said, let me show you. And showed me on the scans that had been taken four days earlier that he had pneumonia. He said, someone will be in within the next two hours. We're going to work on this. We're going to do this. Um, the next morning, the nurse who had two older boys, just a little older than my two oldest boys, she said, when was the last time he had a shower? I said, he's never had a shower. He had this pick line in him and they said he can't shower. She was like, nope, we're going to take care of that right now. Wrapped up his arm. She said, I'm going to find him some pants. We're going to get him out of this gown. It's humiliating for a 16-year-old. You go down and buy him a T-shirt. I'm ordering a shower, a shower chair, and we're going to take care of this. Wow. And the shower chair didn't come. So she went out in the lobby, grabbed a chair that was plastic, and set it in there for him because she didn't want him to faint, you know. He showered, he shaved, he brushed his teeth, he put on clothes. Humanized himself. Oh my gosh, it was night and day. And, um, you know, the doctor had told my son, you know, my youngest son was really afraid that Spencer would have to have surgery. And he said, no, he's like, you know, we're going to get him well. Well, like three days later, they did some scans and things and found out he was, he had infection in his body that and um it sounded like and basically the doctor said i'm gonna reserve an or for wednesday but on tuesday we will um do some interventional radiology see if they can't reach it with with um drains and at the time, you know, we didn't have smartphones. We had like a flip phone. I'm texting my friends and I didn't, uh, and, you know, if you've been through this, I, I know you have, um, Michelle. It's exhausting to go through all the details every day with everyone who's asking. So I just sent out a very simple, listen, we really need prayer tonight. Um, we need some things to go well for us tomorrow. And, um, and they did, they were able to get to it with interventional radiology, did not have to have surgery again. Um, ultimately he lost 28 pounds. He didn't eat for 23 days. He was in the hospital. I think he, well, yeah, he did, he was in the hospital about 28 days, I think. Um, came home on a pit line. All right, there's a reason I did not go into nursing or medicine. <laughs> the Tamakinses are not science people. And they said, okay, we're gonna show you how to take care of this pit line because you're gonna have to give him an IV bag of antibiotics every day at home. And I was like, at, completely out of my element. But you know, you just do it. But yeah, the, and the other option is he'd have to stay in a facility, a hospital or something, and you didn't wanna, you wanted him home. So, um, 
so we we bring him home. He's got this this thing. I have to do this. So thank goodness my best friend is a nurse. And she happened to be home that week getting ready for her son's wedding. And I said, so um, do you want to come over for coffee and an IV? (laughs) (laughs) So she would make sure that I did it right. um, Because I was really worried about that. Uh, And after a week of the um, antibiotic, then we were able to discontinue that, keep the pick line in and flushed. Uh, for a period of time until they were sure that no infection was coming back. And then we went on vacation. We get back while we were on vacation, though, because uh, we just needed to reconnect with all of our kids. Um, he was clearly not recovering the way we thought he would. He was still weak, very weak uh, for alignment on a football team, very weak. And was eating like there was no tomorrow. And one thing led to another. We came back uh, about four days after we returned from our vacation. We went to see Dr. Barksdale. We took the whole family and a gift for him from Werther Carvings because, you know, we we were just so grateful that he saved his life. And he said, since we've only gained five pounds, aren't you eating? And he said, I said, oh my gosh, he's eating between meals. He's eating nonstop. And he said, when was the last time he ate? Well, he just ate. He goes, okay, um, I need you to get blood work done first thing in the morning. One thing leads to another, we find out he developed type, type one diabetes from all that infection and all that fighting his oh body. Gosh. And so, you know, then you're left with, and then we were back in the hospital for a few days to regulate all of that. More education for mom and dad um, and for him on medical things. That It's a change of, a, change of a lifestyle. Yeah. And that was permanent? Right. It's type one is permanent. It means you're, yeah. Wow. So you never want something to be wrong forever uh, for your child. Right. So it's hard. Right. <laughs> no hard. Yeah. Wow, that's so a lot. We got through that in 2009. He's he's great now. I mean, he's you know he's a grown up. He has a job. He plays uh, club sport rugby. Um, takes care of himself. In 2013, my husband went to get his first colonoscopy and they removed a polyp that was cancerous. Um, and so they had to go in and uh, take out a section of his colon. Um, and all of that went very smoothly as, you know, stage one, they caught it very early. So, you know, everyone out there, 50 years old, get your, get get your colonoscopy. Yes, for sure. Um, but he came home and a few days after he came home, he, had a perforation. And so some somewhere in there, there was a weakening uh, a spot. We, we don't really know how it happened. But there was a spot that uh, leaked and he became septic. So I took him up to the hospital and I mean, he, you could just see him filling up with 
whatever. And he had done an emergency surgery. Um, it was definitely a life-threatening thing. And um, he really struggled to recover from that for, he was in the hospital then 11 days over Christmas, um, came home on New Year's Eve, had to have a um, colostomy for about 10 weeks and then went into the hospital again to reverse that uh came home and a couple of days later was back in the hospital from complications um yeah it was it was really crazy so that was 20 he you know the the second surgery was in the spring of 14 uh at the same time my daughter was having uh her job broken and reset um, because of a dental issue. Um, so I did take a month off work there. I had a substitute judge because I knew I needed to take care of everyone, including my young son that was at home. And um, in 2016, uh, my husband had a scan of his head because he was having some issues with hearing and they found a brain tumor that was not cancer, uh, but had to be removed. And, you know, so it just, I don't know. You, you know, we have these little, these traumas and- But you, uh, I have to say, you compartmentalize them and it's not, it doesn't define you. You know, when you share that story, that's why I wanted, I wanted our listeners to hear that you, you know, you choose the joy, you choose to find peace, you choose to keep putting one foot in front of the other and moving forward. And yes, this life looks beautiful and it is, but you know what? We all have trauma, we all have crisis, but it's how we handle that. And what I'm hearing is you handle that as a family. You guys are a strong family unit that support each other. You have a good support network of friends. And even when you said, you know, I took a month off, you know, you knew I needed to be there for my husband and my kids and, you know, do what I need to do. It's beautiful to see that, you know. When you're setting alarms every two or three hours because someone needs medication. Yeah. Throughout the day, like 24 hours. Yes. And then you still have to get someone up and take them to school and make sure they're fed. I mean, it was, it was a lot. Um, at the, the very day Steve had his brain surgery, my dad went back in the hospital for congestive heart failure. And while they were in the emergency room, my mom fell. Oh my God. So I, my husband had surgery on a Thursday morning. We were home by Friday night, which shocked me. You know, they opened his brain and then they sent him home the next night. Um, but, you know, then I get up Saturday morning and I have to go check on my mom and go check on my dad in the hospital. And then Sunday was Easter and everyone's expecting me to cook. Cause and you I, can do it all. <laughs> you know, and it was, it was overwhelming. I mean, I remember, and I'll just, you know, being real here. I remember pulling into the car wash just so I could cry my eyes out. Mm -hmm. um, I was gonna ask, what else did you do like for coping during all of this? Like to kind of keep your mindset, you know, from losing it. Um, hmm. you know, I, I, I think I just become very task oriented. I'm, I'm um, to that. You know, while my husband was in the hospital recovering from 
the complications of his colon surgery, I was, uh, you know, I was there, I stayed in the hospital overnight and I was uh, reading and editing my daughter's essays for scholarship, for uh, college applications, you know? Um, and just, I don't know, um, when I, when we found out he had cancer and it was, you know, October 31st, 30th, I thought, okay, it's time to Christmas shop because things are going to start happening and I need to be ready for, you know, so like I just become very task oriented, I think. And I, the other thing is I, and this is, this is, you know, the Pollyanna in me, I guess I'm always looking for what's going right mm -hmm. instead right. of focusing on what's going wrong. Mm -hmm. And so I would be there going, oh, oh, the white count is better today or, oh, he didn't have a fever today or, you know, and, uh, you know, looking back on it, I think, wow, there was really some serious things going on. And I would always say, oh, he was able to walk all the way to the bathroom today or, he was able to walk clear down to the nurse's station and just focusing on the small victories. I don't know. I don't know if that's a way of coping or ignoring everything. No, I think it's, it's no, also, so yeah, you have, we, I mean, we preach that I, even with my clients focusing on what it, what are the gratitudes? What are we thankful for? What is going well? And that is the way to get through because if we, we could all go down the rabbit hole and, and, and get in that place where you can't get out. So, um, I, I love your grace for yourself, for your family. I love your fortitude, you know? And again, when we meet people, it's like, oh, wow, this person has it all together. Their life has just been blessed and it has, but we all have our stuff, you know? And that's that compassion for each other, the empathy that we have that, you know, just because somebody seems like everything's great doesn't always mean it is. And that's that. Yeah. And during that time, you know, I was, I ended up then shortly after Steve's brain surgery and losing my father, um, who was 90. So again, you know, yeah, a good, long them, a good, you know, good working relationship with them. Good. Um, yeah, I, I think I, um, you know, when I was 17, he was the one saying, you need to use your brain and you need to go to school and do something, you know, with your head. And uh, and at the end of the life, he's saying things to me like, so you're not going to do a judge thing forever, right? And I really think you should keep auditioning for everything because I, I returned to theater uh, in the fall of 2014 and, um and I just remember talking to him about, you know, there's this show coming up and this show, and I don't know which one to audition for. He's like, Elizabeth, audition for everything. And I was thinking, where was this guy? I just got to say that too. I love that because that was your passion. And people say, what do I want to do? And I like this, I like this, or my job is this. But you know what? You can, you can put that in there as your extracurriculars, you know, your, your job yeah, is be beautiful. You're helping people in your job. And I know we can't get into this, but you do a lot for the community and with the addiction portion of that, but still going back to what your passion is. And that is another coping skill. That is another way of filling your cup up because we always say we give and give and give and give and give and give. And how do we fill? This is a perfect example. And dad's pretty I, smart. <laughs> I, I returned to tap dancing class. I found an adult tap class. 
um, 20, no, about 19 years ago. And uh, and it's funny, we call it our tap therapy, Um, but uh, just core group, um, we, we have tapped on and off. You might not see each other because it's somebody's uh, track season or things got really busy with this or that, but um, I still tap dance. And I say, you know, it's, I ask myself, why did God give me this passion? And I think it's because when you're in tap class, if you start thinking about anything else that's going on in your life, your feet aren't going to do what they're supposed to do. So you absolutely have to leave it all at the door and you get to make noise and stomp your feet and you can't let any of that other stuff into your head or you'll mess up. So again, uh, perfect coping coping skill because you're also exercising, releasing endorphins. You have your core support group of those people. That's a perfect example of a a wonderful blocking out all of the, the negative and the hard stuff. So we so appreciate your sharing your story with us. And it's a beautiful story. I mean, it's got pieces of everything. And I love that if our young people can hear, sometimes it's okay to listen to the older, wiser folks because there's things that that are being shared that are helpful, you know? So I appreciate that. And look how your life has progressed because you did take that wisdom and listen. And I would say the other thing is to just really establish a practice of lifelong learning. And, you know, I'm still, actually, I've got my, my Duolingo app on my phone. I'm trying to learn Greek. And my husband speaks Greek, so I'm trying to learn Greek. I'm trying to learn Spanish, um, and I, you know, I still tap, do tab. I teach a Sunday school class. Um, I went back to school in the fall of 2005 for a master's degree in Chris, Christian ministry. Um, that really helped me talk to those addicts and the people that come into my court. Um, you know, we're all broken. And help me remember that and, and realize that and think about um, if this person is made in the image of God, how am I supposed to treat them? Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I, I went back to school for a while, um, just always looking at something new to learn. I think that was an example that um, my father set for me too. Was, he was a lifelong learner and, um, well, yeah. I think you're, you're complimenting your father for all his wisdom. I think our listeners can gain a lot of wisdom from what you've shared today. There's a lot to glean from what you've shared in, in, your, in your life and, and your wisdom and your words. And, and I'm sure that a lot of that comes from all the people you've met being on the bench and all the people you've come in contact with. And I always say this for myself. I learn from every single person, every single client. They're there for, to get help from me, but I learn from everyone. And I think that's going back to keeping that open-mindedness and listening. You know, so thank you, Judge Elizabeth Tamakis, for sharing your story. A judge who tap dances, a judge who is a Christian ministry, uh, teaches Sunday school. I mean, you're pretty darn amazing. So thank you so much. Great mother. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, so great mother, great wife. So thank you so much. And I hope you enjoy this beautiful weather this week. And um, we appreciate Thanks for having me. Thank you. Yes, it was wonderful. So if you want to hold on. Yeah, and for our listeners, don't forget to tag us on your stories and share with us one of your biggest takeaways because there were so many good nuggets from this interview. Yes, absolutely. And as always, stay cheeky.